We've all lost something. Uh, We have that experience in common. I lost my dad's nice jacket in high school, and I lost a pair of suit pants on the way back from college. I'm not sure how someone can do that, but I did. I think it flew off the back of our trailer or something. I lost uh, my Cabela's LED flashlight that Christina gave me, and then I found it wrapped up in our family tent, and then I lost it again. So I I don't know where it is right now. Uh, I've lost tons of stuff in my life, misplaced things, lost things, but that kind of loss, that kind of loss isn't too bad. You know, we can replace a flashlight. Losing things that can't be replaced that's, that's much tougher. Some of you have lost your childhood. Some of you have lost relationships. Maybe a close friend, maybe a spouse, maybe a broken engagement. Some of you have lost opportunities. Some of you have lost jobs. Some of you have lost your health and the ability to, to do what you've always done. Some of you have lost spouses. You've lost children. Uh, You've lost loved ones. This kind of loss, that kind of loss, that that knocks the wind out of you. And it changes how you, you live. We've all lost something. To live is to sometimes lose. Therein lays grief. Grief is a universal experience. The Mayo Clinic is one of the best hospitals in the nation, it is ranked number one in more specialties than any other hospital, number one in, in endocrinology, geriatrics, neurology, and neurosurgery, and more. And on their website, under the section um, uh, Support and Bereavement Groups, they ask the question, what is grief? So here is what the, uh, the Mayo Clinic says about grief. Grief is a strong Sometimes overwhelming emotion for people, regardless of whether their sadness stems from the loss of a loved one or from a terminal diagnosis they or someone they love have received. They might find themselves feeling numb and removed from daily life, unable to carry on with regular duties while saddled with their sense of loss. Grief is the natural reaction to loss Grief is both a universal and a personal experience. Individual experiences of grief vary and are influenced by the nature of the loss. Some examples of loss include the death of a loved one, the ending of an important relationship, job loss, loss through theft, or the loss of independence through disability. Experts advise these grieving to realize they can't control the process and to prepare for varying stages of grief. Understanding why they're suffering can help as can talking to others and trying to resolve issues that cause significant emotional pain, such as feeling guilty for a loved one's death. Mourning can last for months or years. Generally, pain is tempered as time passes and as the bereaved adapts to life without a loved one, to the news of a terminal diagnosis or to the notion that someone they love may die. You probably identify with that. Grief is natural. Grief is universal. Everyone grieves. Who lives and does not grieve? No one. To live is to sometimes grieve. That's scary even to think about. And I guess the question becomes for all of us, how can we get through grief when it comes? It will come. But does grief have to shut us down when it does come? 
Does grief have to sap our joy? Does it have to sap our hope? Does grief have to make us angry? Does it have to make us bitter? Does it have to make us cynical? Does it have to make us retreat in fear? Or is there a way to grieve with hope and with joy and with peace? Some people grieve so deeply that they give up. Why? Why would they do that? Because they can't see a clear way through their grief. Grief suffocates their hope. But there is always good news for the grieving. God's good news. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. Therefore, it is so good and so promising and so powerful that it can actually help us through our grief. The deepest possible grief. And and that's not pie in the sky. That's true. It's true. Listen to what Jesus told his disciples. The night before he was horrifically executed and he said this to prepare them for grief. He tenderly told them this. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will be able to take your joy from you. They had sorrow They had sorrow. They did see Jesus again, alive. They did rejoice, and Jesus gave them indestructible joy in himself that could never be taken away. The resurrected Jesus Christ is the only thing powerful enough to give you everlasting joy and hope in the midst of temporary grief and sorrow. Let me say that again. The resurrected Jesus Christ is the only thing, the sole thing that is powerful enough to give you everlasting joy and hope amidst temporary grief and sorrow. Please don't forget that. John 20 is not primarily about grief. I think the central intent or the the central purpose of John 20 is to present the historical reality of the empty tomb and a resurrected Christ, and how eternal life is given to those who believe. But, but even though John 20 is not chiefly about grief, when you study it, grief is absolutely there. It's a huge part of this passage. In just eight verses, the Greek word kleo is used four times. Kleo means to cry your eyes out, to cry your eyes out with raw emotion, to sob, to wail, to lament something uh, significant. Mary Magdalene grieved because she had lost something significant. She grieved because she lost something precious to her. But Jesus met her in her grief, and as we'll see, he did something amazing for her. So what I hope God does, the Holy Spirit of God does for you, is draws you into this story because this story is beautiful. I cried while I was studying it in my office. The tender mercy of Jesus is absorbing and very moving in these few verses. And the truth of these verses can actually help you through your grief. Would it be wrong of me to say they work? God will meet you in your grief and allow this passage and this story to just draw you in. John singled out Mary Magdalene. Other women visited the tomb. Other women saw the angels. But John highlighted Mary. 
So let's watch Mary for a bit. Jesus had a profound impact on Mary Magdalene's life. And I want you to see the love and compassion Jesus had for Mary. The love and compassion that Jesus had for Mary Magdalene. Earlier in Mary's life, Jesus ministered to her in a wonderful and in a supernatural way. Mary was tormented by evil spirits. She was possessed by seven demons trapped inside of a world of evil, controlled by haunting thoughts and impulses and images, and then all of a sudden, one day, she was set free. Jesus healed her. He cast out seven demons from inside of her with her new life. I mean, she's just, Jesus gave her a new life, and with that new life, she began to follow Jesus. She began to pay attention to his teaching to his power, to his compassion, to his truth. This is why the death of Jesus then in this moment caused her so much grief because Jesus meant the world to Mary Magdalene. Mary saw Jesus die and grieved. Talk about grief. Mary watched Jesus on the cross agonize and die. John 19, 25 says that Mary Magdalene was standing by the cross of Jesus, with Jesus' mom, with his aunt, and another Mary, the wife of Clopas. What a horrible experience. That was graphic. Mary also saw Jesus buried and grieved. When Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus placed Jesus' body in the tomb, Matthew and Mark record that Mary Magdalene was near the tomb watching. She saw his body laid in the tomb. She saw the tombstone rolled over the entrance. She bought spices to anoint the body of Jesus. And after the Sabbath went to the tomb to anoint his body, Mary had to grieve the loss of Jesus. Mary had to come to grips with saying goodbye to Jesus. To make matters worse, she saw that the tombstone had been moved. And so in her mind, she thinks that the body has been moved as well, which was very concerning for her. It was Mary who, after seeing that, went, ran, and told Peter and John the news that that his body had been taken. And when we meet Mary in John 20, verse 11, at the tomb, we need to understand how much Jesus meant to her and how powerfully Jesus worked in her life. She suffered great loss. She suffered many things, but Jesus had been so good to her. So she grieved her loss. You know what it feels like to grieve the loss of something so precious to you, someone so precious to you. I think you identify with Mary. After Peter and John left the tomb and returned home, Mary Magdalene uh, stayed around. And Mary saw then the empty tomb and grieved. Considering verse 1, it appears that Mary hadn't really looked into the tomb the first time. She had seen that the stone was rolled away. Perhaps she looked in from a distance, but she quickly ran to tell Peter and John the news. But when she came back, verse 11 says, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Twice in verse 11, the word kleo appears. Mary wept. Wept. Not a few tears and some sniffling. 
She wailed. She sobbed with sorrow. That's how deep her heart grieved. Not only had her Lord died, not only had he been buried and she needed to let go, but now she had no idea where his body had been placed. She stooped and looked in and the reality of the missing body was confirmed. Was this some cruel joke? How could she honor Christ and anoint a body that wasn't there? Now, if we can put the angels aside for a moment, Mary saw that Jesus' body was laying there, or was not laying there, where it had been laid. She saw the empty tomb through a torrent of tears. She didn't immediately believe that an empty tomb could have meant that Jesus was still alive. She, she, she heart grieved so much that she believed something more plausible. She believed something that made more sense to her. So she settled for that. She didn't know what was coming. Her momentary sorrow made it very hard for her to see and feel and experience the truth. And isn't that grief? Grief often veils the truth. It's that way for everyone, I think. We grieve so deeply that we miss the truth that is so close. Grief can be so overpowering that it can cast dark shadows upon the light of God's truth. Mary's heart ached so much that it seems like the two angels didn't even give her pause for curiosity. Angels are are these glorious messengers, these uh, supernatural beings sent from God to deliver a message. Even when Mary encountered, you gotta just think of this, paranormal creatures sent from God you'll notice that she still remained focused on, I don't know where his body is. Wouldn't the angels be a clue that something was up here? God may have something better in store. Grief often veils the truth. Mary saw the angels and grieved. The angels spoke to her and said, woman, why are you weeping? They knew why she was weeping. They're asking the question was a gentle rebuke. In other words, woman, why are you weeping considering what has just happened? The angels knew. Mary didn't. The angels, I think, were beginning to direct her gaze to the truth. Her grief was so intense, she seemed to not really react to the fact that she was talking with supernatural beings. John says nothing about fear. Maybe she was blown away. Maybe she was quaking in her boots, so to speak, and John just didn't say it. But her answer is fascinating. She said, right to these supernatural beings sent from God, they have taken away my Lord, I, and I, don't, I do not know where they have laid him. Well, of course, that was true. She had no idea where his body was, but she was saying that to angels. She didn't seem to make the connection between an empty tomb and the angels who might have a message from God for her. Grief is powerful. Grief is very powerful. These angels do something else. They confirm that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, that it actually happened. His body wasn't stolen. He, he didn't resuscitate after um, surviving the cross, and then he moved the tombstone himself, and he somehow went out escaping. You know, there is no conspiracy here. Jesus was dead, and he came back to life, and supernatural messengers from God confirmed it. It was, as D.A. Carson said, an invasion of God's power. An invasion of God's power. 
So what happens next might actually seem strange to us. But if you think about it, it makes sense. Mary saw Jesus and grieved. Mary saw Jesus and grieved. Her sorrow was so strong that she actually looked at Jesus, saw him there, didn't recognize him, and continued to grieve. And I think this is totally understandable. The Mayo Clinic said this, grieving people might find themselves feeling numb and removed from daily life, unable to carry on with regular activities while saddled with their sense of loss. That's true. Grief can feel like this weird out-of-body experience. You know, you're, you're living, you're moving, you're doing something, but everything feels surreal. Everything seems kind of numb. Grief often blinds us to the otherwise obvious truth and hope within our reach. Listen to verses 14 and 15. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. She saw Jesus. She even heard his voice, but she didn't realize it was him. And I, and I think several things are at play here. Things that I think we can understand if we put ourselves in her shoes. Mary was grieving. Grieving can confuse the obvious. Mary had been weeping. I mean, sight is not always 20-20 when you've been weeping for a while, right? Her eyes were probably burning. Her glance at Jesus was probably pretty quick. Maybe it was, it was the morning, so maybe it was a bit dark yet, or maybe where they were standing, it was uh, shadowed shaded in some way. Jesus was no longer badly beaten. He, he wasn't bloody anymore. His, his resurrected and glorified body was, was different. But I think a big part of what was happening here is assumption. Assumption is a powerful thing. She assumed Jesus was dead. And so the last thing she was expecting to see was Jesus alive right there in front of her. So for probably various reasons, Mary didn't recognize Jesus. And so he tenderly and gently rebuked her. Woman, why are you weeping? And it's significant that he asked her, whom are you seeking? Whom, not what. Whom suggests something different than what. William Hendrickson, a great scholar, he noted this. Notice whom, not what. Although in her reply to the angels, Mary had spoken about her Lord, she had not been looking for him, but for his corpse. She had been looking for something, not someone. When the one who addresses Mary now asks, for whom are you looking? He is beginning to turn her thoughts in another and better direction. She must begin to look for a person, not a thing. End of quote. We know from verse 16 that after seeing Jesus, Mary turned away from him. She probably just got a quick glance, and I think she was so distraught uh, that, that she, wanted, she just wanted to know where his body was and then move on with the body. And so maybe this guy who's talking to her, maybe this gardener, 
could somehow enlighten her. In verse 15, supposing Jesus to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Just point me in the right direction. Just give me some clue so I can get to his body, so I can take him and get out of this garden. This is how grief is for us. We need to grieve. And we need to keep living. And we try to do that. But we're weak. And it's really hard to keep living. But we put one foot in front of the other in kind of a haze. And we keep moving. And something strange seems to be carrying us. And because grieving is so painful, we sometimes struggle to see the obvious truth that is right there. Of course it doesn't seem obvious at the time. Of course it is difficult to see. But the truth is right by our side. Ready to help us keep moving, keep moving, keep pressing on toward Christ. What happened next is so stunning. This is the part that got me in my office. It's so loving, it's so compassionate, it's so kind, it's so gentle. Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary. And this is what you need in your grief. This is what I need in my grief. This is what helps us through. It is the voice of Jesus calling to you in your grief, calling you to look at him, to keep your eyes on him. Mary heard his voice. Could it be? Do my ears deceive me? Could he be alive again? Could the tomb be empty because he walked out of it alive? Is Jesus speaking to me again? The voice of Jesus called Mary to turn from her grief and to turn to him. Hope made Mary turn to Jesus. And she saw him and she said, Rabbi, teacher, In a flash, her grief vanished. In a flash, the the moved body theory immediately became superseded with reality. Jesus was standing before her alive. She heard, she turned, she saw, she believed. The resurrection of Jesus conquered her grief. The joy, please don't miss this. The joy of knowing Christ is alive overshadows the grief of suffering tremendous loss. Do you remember John 10? Verses three and four. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. They know his voice. Mary knew the voice of her Lord. Her grief was no match, could not stand for the superior joy of knowing Jesus Christ is alive again. Mary heard Jesus, saw Jesus, believed Jesus, worshiped Jesus, and obeyed Jesus. Heard, saw, believed, worshiped, and obeyed. I say she worshiped Jesus because I think Mary fell at Jesus' feet and clung to him in worship and adoration in that moment. Now, John didn't write that, so we need to be careful. But what Jesus said to her in verse 17 suggests she probably was clinging to him. And then what Matthew 28, 9 says alludes to the same conclusion when the women fell and grabbed his feet 
and were worshiping and adoring him. Verse 17 says this, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, if you read scholars, they're going to tell you that verse 17 is among the most difficult verses in the New Testament to to, uh, interpret. So, here we go. I'm not exactly sure why Jesus told Mary not to cling to him and what that had to do with his ascension back to the Father. I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but probably the most likely interpretation is that Jesus didn't want Mary clinging to him because she She needed to go. She needed to go right away and tell the disciples of his resurrection and his forthcoming return to God. He would be around for a bit longer. He stayed with them for the course of 40 days. And so, go, Mary. Go and tell the news. Now, I'm not dying on that hill, but that could be his meaning there. And notice that for the first time, Jesus referred to his disciples as what? Brothers. Brothers, not disciples, not servants, not friends, brothers, brothers. Jesus, you got to grab this, Jesus had biological half-brothers. Mary had other children. The scripture is clear about that. But he wasn't talking about those brothers because verse 18 says Mary went to whom? To the disciples. He considered his disciples brothers. Get this, faith in Christ unites you to Christ as family. Brothers and sisters, not only is God Jesus' father, but God is the father of everyone who is united to Christ by faith. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God brings sons and daughters from afar, and he adopts them into his family, and he gives them the best older brother that anybody could have. Now, I have a great older brother, but he pales in comparison to Jesus, my true older brother. God brings us into his loving and close-knit family to enjoy fellowship with the triune God and to enjoy fellowship with the family of God, other brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I just want you to ponder the implications of what Jesus told Mary. Romans 8.14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Or verse 16, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Or Galatians 3.26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Jesus was connected with his disciples in a familial way. So he assured them of their sonship through Mary. Doesn't what Mary said just about sum, sum it up. This is, this is what she said. Mary Magdalene went and announced, great announcement, to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. How did that land? I have seen the Lord. Isn't that the summary of what I've been trying to preach for the past few weeks? I have seen the Lord. He has risen. He has risen indeed. He is alive. The resurrection is true. It is credible because we have eyewitness testimony by men and women. People saw him. He is alive. She heard. She saw. She believed. She worshiped and she obeyed. She went and she told the good news. So let's bring this home. Here's an important point about your grief and about my grief that you might be asking as you hear this. What you have lost is probably not coming back. 
Of course Mary got through her grief because she grieved something that had been reversed. What purpose did she have to grieve the death of Jesus when Jesus is standing there in front of her alive? That hardly would seem relevant to grieve anymore. You see, but what causes your grief is likely more permanent. But I perhaps should not use the word permanent so quickly. But instead say your grief is momentary. Momentary. Because whatever momentary grief you now have, it will be gone when you meet Christ face to face. Jesus is still alive And as long as he is alive, you have eternal hope, you have eternal joy in him, in your grief, and you have purpose in this life. Think about this. Mary Magdalene faced grief again after Jesus ascended. This wasn't the end of grief for Mary. I'm sure she had many people that she loved die. She had to face death herself. But now, as she proceeded knowing Christ has raised from the dead, she faced her grief now with something new, a new piece of information that Jesus is still alive. That's a game changer. She knew his victory over death and knowing how the story ends, man, you can endure more knowing how the story ends. So that no doubt helped her. So I wanna give you five biblical actions to help you through grief in your life. Now, right now might not be a time of intense grief for you. It might be a time of intense grief for you. I don't know where you are, but all of us grieve, and this is all relevant every day of our lives. Now, I want to say this. These are also not five psychological tricks. They are God-honoring tactics that actually work, And, and And let me just say, they won't immediately take away your pain. They won't immediately lessen that that punch of your grief. But I promise you, they will uphold you in your grief. They will preserve you in your grief. They will strengthen you in your grief. We all must walk through grief and we need something sure. We need a bedrock. We need something that we know is true that can help us get through grief and that's what I want to encourage you with. Number one, hear the voice of Jesus calling you in the word. Hear the voice of Jesus calling you in the word. You can get through the deepest grief with joy but you must regularly hear the voice of God in his word. Read your Bibles. And take the message to heart. Listen to God. His voice in Scripture is so tender for you. It's so truthful and direct. It will tell you exactly what you need to hear. And it will comfort you. And it will strengthen you. And it will give you peace in your grief. Number two, see Jesus in the Word. See Jesus in the Word. You see Jesus... When the Holy Spirit reveals him to you in the word, the Spirit gives you eyes to see Jesus through the text. So I'm not talking about a physical manifestation of Jesus. He hasn't come back yet. But what I'm saying is seeing the the glorified and risen Christ in the text and allowing the Spirit to bring it to life for you. 
We cannot see Jesus face to face until later, but we can see him in the Bible. So watch him there and be amazed at him and be reassured. Number three, believe Jesus in the word. Believe Jesus in the word. The promises of God will not help you. The promises of God will absolutely not help you unless you believe them and trust in them. They are true, but whether they help you or not has a whole lot to do with whether you're going to put stake in them. You've got to believe they're true for you. Faith is how we fight through grief. Faith in God's promises. When you actually believe the truths and promises of God, though you have pain, you will endure because God carries you through it. And it's his sure promises that will get you. Cry out to God. Cry out to God to help you believe and to help you grieve well. We're not going to grieve well without the Holy Spirit helping us grieve well. Number four, worship Jesus in the word. Preaching, teaching, prayer, singing, giving, the sacraments, Lord's Day worship, what we're doing right now helps people through grief. Family worship, worshiping God in spirit and truth is power and hope and joy in grief. We have to express our love and devotion to God. We have to express our gratitude to God for all that he has given. And I think that somehow God works in that gratitude to help the things that are really grieving our, help, uh, grieving our hearts to grow a little dimmer and God's glory to, to grow a little brighter and it helps you get through. Heartfelt. And you know, sometimes tearful worship. It's okay to sing songs with tears streaming down your face, having a broken heart, but having joy in your Christ. That's okay. That's good, actually. I wish it happened to me more. Maybe sobs will strengthen you. Worship will strengthen you because God meets you in his word So cling to Christ in worship. Number five, obey Jesus by obeying his word. Grief pushes many people away from God because in the middle of it, they turn to their sin and they'd rather go wreck their life instead of actually running to God who can comfort them. And and they turn to sin as Novocaine to numb the pain. And it doesn't work. That only compounds grief. Obeying God is, in the toughest times, fuels joy and intimacy with God who will carry you through. Obey God. Obey him. Obey his word. Follow the spirit. Delight in following Jesus with all your heart. And God will be there. He will meet you there every time. If I could simplify what we need to do in grief to endure it, it would be do what Mary Magdalene did in the garden. She turned and she looked at Jesus. What we need most is to turn and to look to Christ. Let's sing the the famous hymn together. Maybe with tears... 
And let's allow this old hymn just to point us to gaze at Christ. Jesus said, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. That's it. That's what gets us through grief. Look on the Son. Look to Him in faith. Never take your eyes off of Jesus. John Piper said that God's face is the brightest of His personal character. So when you look to Jesus and you look full into the fullness of his grace, into the fullness of his truth, you see the face of God in Christ. The hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, was written by Helen Lemmel in 1918. Helen Lemmel had a beautiful voice. And uh, she even toured throughout the Midwest singing in churches, and she taught at the, the uh, voice at the Moody Bible Institute and the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. And then God's bitter providence came to Helen. She was struck blind. She became blind. And I guess quickly after that, her husband completely abandoned her. And Helen knew the depths of grief. She absolutely did. And she wrote this hymn after reading an article by Lilius Trotter. Lilius Trotter was a brilliant artist of the 20th century. But she laid her art down to serve, get this, as a missionary to Muslims in Algeria. She was a successful artist. And she served in Algeria for the Muslim people 38 years. Lilius wrote these words, and I think they'll sound familiar to you. Turn full your soul's vision to Jesus and look, and look at him. And a strange dimness will come over all that is apart from him.